Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Scott Luton and Mary-Kate Love here with you on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Mary-Kate, how you doing? So excited to be here with you, Scott. We are too, and so great to have you back on this side of the microphone right. or camera, whatever you want to call it. Really have enjoyed our collaboration for years now. And hey, Mary-Kate, as you know, on today's episode, we're continuing our very popular series, Supply Chain Leadership Across Africa. We've been conducting this series for several years now, really as we want to focus our platform on the innovation and brilliance and leadership that can be found throughout the 54 countries that make up the continent of Africa. So today, though, we're pleased to not only feature two titans of both the global industry and the ring, more on that in a second, but we're also pleased to conduct Today's episode in partnership with Village Reach, a powerful nonprofit that is transforming healthcare delivery to reach everyone. In fact, their critical work enables access to quality healthcare for 70 million people. Wow. Learn more at villagereach.org. Mary-Kate, I got to stop there. That's a remarkable mission and critical mission. Would you agree? Yeah, it's almost impossible not to be inspired just hearing that mission alone. So I'm even more excited to dive in today and learn more about that mission. You and me both. So outstanding show here. I mentioned a little bit about the guests here in a second. We're going to learn more in a minute, but we're going to be diving into public health supply chains, both in general and specifically in Africa. Amongst many, many other things, we're going to be talking about some really cool innovation that we're seeing in the sector, including from an entrepreneurial standpoint. So stay tuned for a great show. So Mary-Kate, if you're good with it, I'm going to go ahead and bring in our two featured guests. Sounds great to me. Wonderful. So let's get started. I want to introduce both of our guests here. First, we've got a repeat guest. So officially, Tapiwa is already a member of the family, but Tapiwa Mukwashi, a global health supply chain expert who brings more than 15 years of private sector and international development experience to the table. Now, Tapiwa serves as director, global technical team at Village Reach. And by the way, he's got a thousand megawatt smile. So Tapiwa, <laughs> great to have you back with us again. How you doing? Thanks, Scott. It's great to be back here again. Looking forward to the show and looking forward to learning more from David, from Medicaid, and from yourself. Oh, wow, man. Already talking in like leadership poetry to Piwa, <laughs> music to my ears. Now, you brought a fascinating leader with you, David Chin. Now, he brings a background in genetics and pharmaceutical consulting to our conversation today, amongst other things. Now, he has leveraged his experience in these areas and a lot more to co-found Capsule, a pioneering African healthcare data analytics company. Now, as co-CEO, David is helping Capsule to revolutionize healthcare across Africa by collecting, aggregating, and standardizing data from various markets. And we know the power of data and what the outcomes that that can lead to. So, David, welcome in. Well, I thank you for having me, Scott. Real pleasure to be here. Well, we are pleased to have you both, and y'all both have been helping to fuel such an important mission, again, that's providing important outcomes for folks all around the globe. So great to have you here, David. Okay. So Mary-Kate, I kind of teased something on the front end. And as we get to know Tapiwa and David a little bit more, Mary-Kate, are you a boxing or karate enthusiast? 
you know what? I I can't say I am. I have much appreciation for the sports as an athlete myself. My family, I have a few boxers in the family, but I can't say it's a sport that, quite frankly, I'm even able to watch because it's it looks so brutal to me. So kudos to you guys for both of those sports. By the way, Mary-Kate is a, at least, amongst other things, a softball champion. I've seen the proof, the trophy, the whole nine yards. So Thanks for bringing that up. (laughs) (laughs) We're all champions. All right. So back to what I was teasing about. So to Piwa, I get to know you a little better. Besides being a second degree black belt, and I'm going to mispronounce this to Piwa, but Kyokushin Karate. Did I say that right? You say that right, Scott. Okay. Man, a second degree black belt. That's something I would talk about as a kid. I only got to, I think, yellow belt status in Zen Shodokai, which I took years, decades ago. But beyond your martial arts passions and hobbies, I want to ask you about your reading because you're a voracious reader. And we get questions all the time. Hey, what's the next good book I can read? So what's been one of your favorite books that you've read in the past 12 months or so to P1? I'll talk about my favorite book anytime, and it's a memoir by Shimon Perez, No Room for Small Dreams. It's a book that talks about courage, imagination, and the making of a modern state. You know, there's so much that one can learn from that book about how to transform their life, transform society. And so Scott today is No Room for Small Dreams. No Room for Small Dreams. I love the book title alone. I bet the story behind it is fascinating. So No Room for Small Dreams. Thank you so much. All right. So moving right along, we could do a whole conversation, I think, around just that last thought to Piwa. But moving right along, David, now you're the first professional boxer that we've ever had on Supply Chain Now in over 1,200 episodes. Now, as I told you in the pre-show, Mary-Kate may not be, but I grew up loving Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. Those were two of my idols. So I got to ask you, tell us about your first bout, David. Yeah, my first bout was quite the experience. So I've been training boxing for a number of years, but recently decided to go professional. So I had my first professional bout on the 27th of May of this year. And it was a very philosophical moment for me. So (laughs) (laughs) as a founder, as an innovator, you're always trying to go against the odds, do the impossible. And what I found with boxing, it really is the epitome of fear. To go into a professional boxing ring, you are faced with someone who's equally as big as you, as strong as you, and has been focused on hurting you for 12 weeks. <laughs> so every bone in your body makes you want to run away. But then you have to muster the courage to still step forward, to go into the ring, and then to fight someone else. So for me, it was a very philosophical moment where it's peak fear, that's peak anxiety, and to go and face that feeling and then step forward regardless, that's what I wanted to take away from it. So I was fortunate enough to get the W. So in my one and only professional fight so far, I, I was fortunate enough to win against the top opponent. There were moments in there where you question yourself to think, I could be running my company. Why am I here right now? <laughs> in the middle of a ring, get punched in the face. But uh, it gave me a metal that I have taken into my life more generally. And as a founder and as an entrepreneur and an innovator, I feel like having that in your toolbox is an invaluable asset. Oh, David, man, y'all brought it already. Mary-Kate, I want to get you, whether you want to comment on Tapiwa's book, No Room for Small Dreams, or the revelations that David, I mean, the intellectual approach on his boxing experience, just creating all kinds of thoughts. What are you thinking, Mary-Kate? 
Well, you already used the word poetic to describe some of these answers here we're already hearing. And that's the word that came to mind to me immediately hearing David specifically speak about boxing. And, you know, if I wasn't a boxing fan to begin with, maybe I'm changing my mind now with the way you just described that. I can totally see your passion coming through there. That's awesome. I'm with you, Mary-Kate. All right. So, folks, we got a lot more to get into. That's just a tip of the iceberg. You know, Mary-Kate, we can never get enough context in this fast-moving world. That's been really important. So I want to level set on the front end. And to people, I want to start with you. Of course, you're with our dear friends over at Village Reach. We've talked about your noble mission already. But tell us, in a nutshell, what does the organization do and your role there to people? There's an organization we focus on health and we build people-centered health solutions. It's focused on improving equity, improving access to care. We value radical collaboration with governments, with other partners who are in the same line of work with the private sector, including some people like David from the startups, innovators, who all strengthen our ability to scale and sustain the solutions that we implement. The work that we do helps us improve the health outcomes of over 70 million people now. And so the work that I do in this whole bigger picture about enabling everybody to get access to healthcare is that I lead a team within Village Reach that's called the Global Technical Team. And we call it the Global Technical Team because we've organized the work we do into some technical focus areas, including supply chain, which is of interest to the audience on this show, digital solutions, private sector engagement, data analytics, and health system strengthening. These are some of the key building blocks that we feel if we navigate as levers, if we maneuver as levers, are going to help us leapfrog through some of the challenges that are being experienced providing primary health care to people across Africa, across sub-Saharan Africa, allowing us to be able to achieve better health outcomes. Less women or no women have to die whilst giving birth. No children have to die whilst they are under the age of five through largely very preventable diseases. So we use solutions that are tech-enabled. We define new approaches to doing things. Rather than people moving 20 kilometers to get to a health facility, we think the products, the medicines must get to people. So we are moving from people to products to a paradigm where products get to people. And we have this desire to say we must drive sustainable impact. Everything that we co-create with governments must be sustained, must be transitioned, must be stewarded by government. And so this is what the work we are doing in, in the geographies that we work. Oh, Tapiwa. Blessed are those that build bridges and even more blessed are those that build bridges amongst all these different shareholders and get results for people out there. Mary-Kate, I think it's important here based on what Tapiwa is sharing, a big theme, was I know you admire Village Reach's mission as much as I do, but I know you're passionate and have spent a lot of time in your career at that intersection and developing those opportunities of public and private partnerships. Mary-Kate, what'd you hear there from Tapiwa? The word that stuck out to me was co-create, because I think there's a lot of power in co-creating between public and private partnerships. So when you can really bring those entities together that, you know, number one, truly understand the problem, which you so eloquently articulated, right? You need to get the product to the people. And then you bring entities that have the technology. I think that's when you start to see solutions that have impact. Love that co-creation kind of sentiment between the public and private partnerships. Agreed, Mary-Kate. Great call out. All right. So, David, as if that's not enough good news, what Tapiwa was sharing, man, y'all are doing some really cool things at Capsule. So, tell us more. Yeah. So, as you mentioned in the introduction to 
myself and Anticapsule, a healthcare data analytics company. And what we essentially saw was that for many multinational institutions, they actually get the information that they need to drive their decisions, whether they be commercial decisions, investment decisions, impact-related decisions. The data is very, very hard to access or even get a hold of. But one thing we also noticed at Capsule is that the data does actually exist, but it's in loads of different silos. What we decided is rather than be another solution that comes on the market trying to be the everything to everybody of creating a platform to onboard healthcare workers or hospitals or pharmacies, why don't we take all of the great software that already exists, standardize that data, aggregate it and combine it into one single place and make the insights available to the market. So if you're a global NGO, you can find out information about the countries which you want to serve and then decide where you will have the biggest impact. If you're a pharmaceutical company, you can understand the trends that are happening for particular products or disease areas or growth opportunities for your products. Or if you're a research organization, you can find potential sites which are capable of running a clinical trial based on their capabilities, based on their infrastructure, the, the number of experts that they have in doctors and nurses, free beds, etc. Or you can identify patients which are traditionally not included in those clinical trials. So identify particular patient groups or specific demographics that you can have more inclusive trials by having a more broad patient base when you're trialing these new medications. That's what we do. And the way we decided to do it is in every single way under the sun as startups do. have <laughs> strong finding innovative ways of aggregating data and coming up with a business model, which makes sense for people or entities to share their data with us, right through to building some software in-house that can capture some data, as well as partnering with other institutions and leveraging third-party technology and streamlining the way the data is collected and distributed to help the institutions that we work with. I guess what I always say to people is if you're talking about data in Africa, you should be talking to Capsule because <laughs> we try and do everything we can to understand it and drive value and impact. I love that. And as we always say around here, informed leaders make informed decisions. It's so important to have our hands on not just data, but the right data. Mary-Kate, all right, you've got a ton of experience with startups we were talking about in the pre-show, including leading that incubator and innovation center we talked about. How cool does the work at Capsule sound to you? I was just nodding along that whole time because data standards came up all the time when I was working in the public-private partnership I was working on was focused on manufacturing. And so collecting data wasn't necessarily the problem, right? Like you said, there's data there, but the problem is collecting it in a way where you can analyze it making sure standards across all organizations are, you know, somewhat matching so that you can make sense of the data. So that's really hard work that not a lot of people are tackling. So super excited to hear that you guys are doing that hard, hard work. Yes, it is. All right. Well said, Mary-Kate and David and Tapiwa. So I want to move us right along. Tapiwa, I'm really looking forward to this next question because we get more context. And I think there's a lot of, just like me at various times in my career, sometimes our blind spot can be other geographic parts of the world and other sectors. And here I want to level set when it comes to the current state of public health supply chains in Africa. So if you could briefly share an overview and some of the challenges that are there within. That's a good question. And I want to start by saying there has been tremendous progress with the supply chains in Africa. As we speak now, medicines are being procured, medicines are being delivered, medicines are being stored, 
people have an understanding of some of the North Star, where do we want to get to? That understanding already exists. But having said that, I want to say, you know, we are in the era of maturity modeling. If you're doing something, how mature is your level of operation? And if we apply the maturity model to the supply chains in Africa, most of them would achieve a low maturity status. And I will explain why. This is because we continue to experience stock outs at the service delivery level, at a level that does not optimize the outcomes we want. We continue to experience expiries. And when expiries are juxtaposed or put in the same line with stock outs in other areas, maybe the inventory could have been repositioned and some of those expiries could have been avoided. So when we look at the supply chains in general, we still have a long way to go to professionalize the public health supply chain as a competence area in which people must have certain skills, competencies to be able to work in that sector. We need to work on the skills. On the infrastructure, we need to continue the journey to building more high-capacity infrastructure, sufficient storage infrastructure on the digital infrastructure to be able to do work more efficiently, faster, and to end visibility. In one of the countries that we work in, you know, as Village Rich, we have always said we want to get medicines where people receive their services. It's not enough to get medicines to a health facility and think you've completed the job. Over 30-40% of the population is getting medicines from community health workers. Whenever you talk about wanting to put medicines pass through to the community health workers, people tell you, you know what? This is a black hole. Once medicines get there, you don't know how much has been used, when it has been used, what conditions it has been used to treat, and why are we going to keep shoving medicines down a black hole? It just gives you an insight into visibility constraints impacting our ability to provide services to people where they are, our ability to report on the medicines, our ability to make efficient use of the scarce financing that we have. So I will close this up and say tremendous progress. There's still a lot of work to be done. Tapiwa, I really appreciate that succinct and deep overview of what we're seeing. And hey, it's great to get the good news. I'm still seeing all these opportunities that you point out there. Mary-Kate, now you're familiar personally with some of the challenges that Tapiwa maybe even touched on with your prior work. Does that sound familiar? Any of that? Yeah, definitely. When you were kind of talking about the maturity model and, you know, coming up with solutions that could actually meet the supply chain where the supply chain is currently at in the maturity model in Africa. And so I had worked with CARE, another nonprofit organization that had to come up with solutions for last mile delivery. And, you know, a lot of solution providers were coming up with very tech forward solutions. And it was like, hey, listen, this might work in a different country. But right now, right here, we're going to focus on SMS text messages to manage our deliveries for last mile instead of, you know, some beautiful app or something that needs to connect to Wi-Fi. So I think that's spot on that, you know, you know exactly where you're at in the maturity model and you kind of keep moving up that maturity model. That's a really realistic and great approach. All right. Good stuff there, Mary-Kate. And Tapiwa, again, thanks for kind of that great practical overview. As a follow-up, Tapiwa, how do you see innovation and technology playing a really important role in improving the efficiency and effectiveness of public health supply chains? Kind of what Mary-Kate was referencing there. There's a very big role for innovation and technology. For beginners, we need to buy the right amount of commodity. And technology can play that big role for supporting forecasting. We know what we've been buying in the last 10 years. We've not used the data 
to inform our future planning around what we should procure. I talked about visibility issues, end-to-end visibility. Technology is that one big advantage of being able to make us hide from the manufacturers. The manufacturers should be able to see what our health facilities, what the clinics are dispensing and prepare their manufacturing schedules accordingly. Another challenge with the supply chains has been the level of fragmentation. 20 supply chains, one for RMNCH commodities, another for vaccines, another for essential medicines, one for malaria. It increases the transaction cost. What can we do about integrating this so that leadership, supply leadership, the government leadership, have a whole huge centralized one view of how things are going. And lastly, I want to talk about we are now in the age where we're able to manage large volumes of data and technology is going to be able to allow decision makers to use data for decision making, focusing on data analytics, being able to manipulate that data in a progressive way that makes for smarter decisions to be made. The PY, there's so many common themes across global supply chain, no matter sector and what you touched on some of those things. And then there's some very unique elements to not only the challenges, but how you see technology and innovation playing a role. So thank you. And it's a great segue because David and Capsule, where Tipiwa finished there, the importance of data and connectivity and visibility and you know overcoming fragmentation. And what he finished in particular, David, is the power of better decision making. And that is a universal advantage. So David, I want to get back to the Capsule story. And to our listeners out there, when we say Capsule, just so you can connect the dots, if you want to do it mid-episode, Capsule, that's with a K, K-A-P-S-U-L-E. So CapsuleTech.com, where you can learn more. But let's talk about what your why was for starting the company, David, and how you built your innovative offering. Yeah, so thanks, Scott. There's a long story behind it, but I'll try and give a abridged version. And I'll start off with, again, a sort of high-level summary of how one even becomes an entrepreneur and decides to set up a company because I think as Steve Jobs said, we're the crazy ones who <laughs> actually believe that we can change the world. So I think for me, the why really came from having, well, from my background and from my experiences of consulting to some of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, seeing the impact that they have on a global level and doing my piece to help those organizations run better. I knew that as a professional, as, uh, as an expert in my field, I had something to offer and I had insights that could be of value to organizations that have global impact. And once I coupled that knowledge that I have something to offer with a sort of dissatisfaction with how the world was, particularly there was a event which I attended, which was the World Brand Safety and Anti-Counterfeiting Summit. And there was a lot that was spoken about on sort of, it was a global platform, a global forum. And there was a very small segment about what was happening on the continent of Africa. And for me, where I was thinking that Africa has such a disproportionately large health burden when compared to other regions of the world, or the fact that it was so little was understood about the market and so little attention was being paid there, it, for me, it, something felt wrong. So I guess it triggered my curiosity to just find out, okay, how can you have such a large continent, so many countries be completely shut off from the global community when it comes to understanding their healthcare? And I guess once the curiosity bug bites you, it's impossible to not follow it to 
and down the rabbit hole. And I was fortunate enough that I had a very close friend who was also in healthcare in Africa. And at the time, he was working in rural hospitals in Kenya. And he, again, he was born and raised in the UK like I was and very much disillusioned with some of the gaps that happen between more developed countries and some of the developing ones. So I think the two of us together were just had this internal angst of the world isn't how we think it should be. And there's enough technology, there's enough innovation in the world where the problems that we were observing shouldn't exist. So the fact that it does exist means that there is a misallocations of resource somewhere. And for me, it was just kind of the feeling that this problem has been largely solved in many other regions of the world. There's no feasible reason why it's impossible for Africa to overcome these challenges. So I'd say that fundamental piece was at the core of the why. And then I'd say the second component is really just finding people who believe in you and are crazy enough to go on that journey with you. So (laughs) (laughs) I'd say I'm quite fortunate in that my closest friends are kind of the same cloth and we all had overlapping experiences. So Hanan, my co-founder, he had a medical background and then our other co-founder, Femi, he was in tech within the pharmaceutical space as well. And he also worked in insurance and banking. So I was very used to building enterprise-grade software. So I think when the three of us were all feeling the same thing, and then we all felt like we had a unique piece of the puzzle that we can contribute, the journey kind of called us. (laughs) We we couldn't really... You couldn't say no. You couldn't say no, David. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and there's a guru in the startup space known as Naval Ravikant, and he has a phrase which I, I like to steal sometimes where... Oftentimes you hear of product market fit, but he says what's more important is product market founder fit, where if you're the right founder working on the right problems, then that is the basis for success. So I think for us, we felt like we had product market founder fit based on our experiences, our passions, and the internal drive to do more and create the world that we believe should already exist And I guess the enthusiasm and, for instance, with with myself, I have a natural inclination to be an optimist. And I think the good part of that is that as an optimist, I didn't think through all of the challenges I was likely going to encounter, (laughs) which has been many. But I think once you get started on the path and you actually see a way forward, the destination is closer than where you started from. So that always keeps you going. David, man, we're going to have to have you back and dive into a full-blown punch-by-punch episode of You and the Capsule Story. For the sake of time, I want to shift gears. Mary-Kate, I'm writing down a lot of things that David just shared there, from the internal angst to finding folks that believe in you and willing to go on that crazy journey, that product market founder fit, great piece of advice. And then one of the things he mentioned is natural inclination to be an optimist. Mary-Kate, I know my thoughts of some of what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I think it is so important for folks that can find that regular grounded optimism to push through even the toughest of days. Mary-Kate, all the founders you've worked with, being a fellow founder, what are your thoughts over that obligatory optimism? I love it because I always say that starting any company, any mission, right, there's high highs and low lows, and you got to ride through those low lows because 
it is really hard to get through those because you're solving really big problems that no one else, quite frankly, has tackled for a reason. But the high highs, nothing beats them when you start to see your solution come to life to change people's lives, change the world. So high highs, low lows. Yes, yes. And and to Piwa and David, we didn't even mention this on the front end. One of the long list of things Mary Kate's done in her career is she is the founder of National Supply Chain Day here in the States, which she founded a couple of years ago. So stay tuned for a lot more cool stuff there. Okay. So to Piwa, getting back, there's so much to that capsule story. We're going to have to, again, bring David back and talk about that in boxing a little later on. But to Piwa, let's talk about some of the unique considerations that you've got to take into account when we design and implement innovative solutions that stick in public health supply chains? Number one, it's important to focus on the problem. Very important to focus on the problem. And this is different from focusing on your technology. If you're coming to address public health supply chain challenges in Africa, and you're coming to sell a solution and a pre-designed solution that's not customized to, to be fragile, to be fit for purpose, it's going to be a challenge. Mary Kat was talking about a use case in which colleagues from an organization wanted to use SMS. And they said, because this works for us, there is buy-in. So if you focus on the problem and if you focus on aligning the innovation to the problem, it's going to work. Secondly, you've got to build trust. You're coming to implement an innovation in an area where people are working, people have a culture, people have a way of doing things. People need to buy into the way that you're proposing that things should be done or tools should be used. And if that understanding, if that buy-in, if those critical insights, if government and their staff are unable to influence or inform the shaping and design, if organizations like Village Rich, based on the extensive relationship with government and use cases, aren't able to influence or inform the design, it's going to be a challenge. And lastly, I want to talk about there must be a strategy. There must be an implementation strategy. Are you targeting implementation in a government-oriented environment, in a private sector-oriented environment, the strategy has got to be different. The level and investment in buy-in has got to be different because you're handling different cultures, different risk-taking appetites. And so focus on three things, focus on the problem, build trust, and be strategic in the implementation. To Piwa, I love that. Mary-Kate, I want to ask you about the first one there, focus on the problem. I love the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Some of our listeners may have seen that as well. And there's a great moment in that movie where Brad and Billy Bean, I think is who he's playing, the GM of the Oakland A's. There's a great moment in that movie where he's got all this expertise around the table. All these scouts have been in the baseball game for decades. And he's like, guys, I'm going to paraphrase, guys, what's the problem? What's our problem here? And you get this guess and that guess and this guess and that guess, and none of them have it nailed. And Billy Bean's like, no, this is the problem. And Mary-Kate, where Tapiwa started, that is so critical right? So our journey is taking the right trajectory, the right direction. We're using resources smart because we know what we're trying to do. Mary-Kate, your thoughts? I love this so much because I think defining the problem is actually the hardest part of anything. Because just like your example, Scott, you know, when you go to a company and you ask them to define what their problem is, it takes a couple of sessions to get down to the root of the actual problem. And after the problem is defined and everyone understands and says, yes, this is the problem, then you can start to talk solutions. You know, it's always the wrong approach when you talk about solutions first and the problem later, because then you come up with a solution that's actually not solving a problem. Yes. Which is just the worst case scenario for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, Mary-Kate, there's a quote somewhere, and I can't remember who said it. 
Not me. I'm going to steal it though. Something like a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved, if I recall that correctly. Yeah. And that can be really challenging. Okay. Hey, David, really quick, I'm going to get your response to either focus on the problem or the build trust or the strategy implementation. Quick comment there on what Tapiwa laid out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's even more pertinent for me because I felt like I made every mistake in the book. So (laughs) (laughs) focus on the problem piece. What I realized that I was doing in my entrepreneurial journey was I would confuse the results with the problem. And Mm. I find that many founders end up doing that. So just to give an example, if the result is that people can't afford certain medication or the results are products are expiring while there is an oversupply or an undersupply of the same product in another area. That is a problem, but that's the results of another problem. And you have to really understand the whole ecosystem by which the problem exists before you can start solving it. And I think for me, in the very beginning of my journey, I was focusing on the results of the problem rather than solving the fundamental issue. So I completely agree with that as well. Yes. And also the other thing that Tapiwa mentioned, which I think is so, so under communicated in the entrepreneurship space is the strategy and the implementation piece. So really, how do you make your product easy to use, easy to consume, easy to interact with for your users in a way that is in line with their current practices like you can have the best solution in the world but if it requires a huge change management process if it requires a huge rethink or training or change of of the way people work humans are inherently lazy and no one's going to want to go through all of that effort for a possible result right and i think that that was something that again made the mistake first and then really had to define our implementation strategy and do it in a way which is reflective of how the world is not how we want it to be Um, and that informed how we went to market what type of clients we were focusing on initially how we grow and expand from those customers Oh, the power of clarity, David, is kind of one of the things you're speaking to. A lot of good stuff there. And Tapiwa, I love those three things. And, you know, it's tough to be simple, but man, with simplicity, you can get so much clarity and move faster and better. So well said, Tapiwa, going back to how you kind of teed up this segment. All right, so let's change gears. You know, David mentioned change management. We got to change gears here. Let's talk about one of the things we mentioned on the front end is this ecosystem of different stakeholders. Always get stakeholders and shareholders uh, confused. (laughs) Stakeholders. This big ecosystem, all these different folks that can play a role from governments and NGOs to the private sector organizations and a lot more. To people, how do you see those partnerships between all of this big ecosystem playing out, That the ones that really, truly move the needle and drive that innovation, and especially in public health supply chains? You know, these partnerships and the collaboration are especially more important because all the stakeholders, and I agree, they're actually shareholders, all of them, they bring knowledge, they bring expertise, they bring different experiences to the table. Our governments, for instance, possess the regulatory knowledge, the public policy expertise, when while NGOs, on the other hand, have a deep understanding of social and environmental challenges, the private sector would bring its own industry-specific expertise, market insights, and a higher risk appetite for trying out new things than the public sector would do. So when stakeholders collaborate, they can share their knowledge and expertise leading to the development of situation-specific innovations that are very important. And above that, having all these stakeholders on the table brings 
access to a much deeper, diverse perspectives than you would. You know, it's a 360 view if you have government, NGOs, innovators, and the private sector. If it was the innovator on their own, I'm sure they would see the elephant from just one side. And so that right. ability to see, to provide diverse perspectives is, is important. Although governments may not have the money, they actually do bring in some resources to the table, assets in terms of access to the health facilities, access to the central medical stores, access to a whole lot of the infrastructure that's being used in a way that allows resource pooling to take place. And so facilitating innovation at a very good scale. And lastly, we've got to share this risk. Governments are not in the business of making risky investments with taxpayers' money. And so anything that's going to help share, distribute the risk is something that's going to increase their appetite for innovation. This should be like a 12-podcast series on just different segments of today's conversation. Mary-Kate, if you could quickly weigh in on some of the things that people just talked about, including one of my favorite parts, is how he, he talked about how all those different stakeholders have different appetites for experimentation. But Mary-Kate, what stood out to you? Yeah, I would even add to that all those different stakeholders can move at different speeds, right? So government entities can't move quickly, whereas the startup can move super fast and doesn't have a lot of red tape to jump through, right? So those partnerships are so advantageous when you can make them happen because of all the pieces that come together. And, you know, I was on a project in Chicago where we needed all the maps of the underground layering in the city of Chicago, which is an older city for U.S. terms, right? And we just couldn't get these maps. We couldn't get these maps. And then we got the city of Chicago to partner with us. And even though they're not technology focused, they knew where those physical maps existed in the basement of a city hall. And so it's like they are bringing something to the table where we need to do this underground mapping project. Even though it's not the technology piece, they have the knowledge of all of this and where it exists. So I love seeing those partnerships come together, even though the entities are also different. That access is critical and the credibility that helps provide that access when the governments are involved. Great example too, Mary-Kate. All right, so David, on a related note, if you could speak specifically to the power of getting the private sector and NGO buy-in first. David, your thoughts. Yeah, and this is something I'm super passionate about, and it kind of segues from what Piwa was mentioning earlier about governments not being in the business of taking risk with taxpayer money. And I think many innovators in the healthcare space on the continent looks at the need and looks at the fact that the government-run facilities serve the bulk of the populations and forget the reality of the situation in that any innovation, any change to the current process presents risk, and they, by definition, are risk-averse. So we made this mistake again. We tried to go through government facilities in the very beginning through our wide-eyed optimism and, and <laughs> uh, naivety, to be completely honest. But then what we saw was that it's really about incentives and aligning incentives. And the easiest incentive to align is that of the private sector because they're driven by three things. The first one is to drive their revenues and increase the amount of money that they're making. The second is to increase the operational efficiency. And the third is to reduce costs. So if you can do any of those three things, ideally a combination of two or even all three of those things, the private sector will engage with you or at least have a conversation. Once we came to that realization, we completely shifted our focus to 
First, really finding out what is the major driver for the private sector actor that we're speaking to. Is it to grow the revenues? Is it to increase efficiency? Or is it to cut costs? And then once we defined what that was for our customer, we then focus all of our products, KPIs, and almost everything that we're measuring about our performance as a business was geared towards driving that one thing for the client. And then once they're happy and they're getting the value that they expect, you then have the evidence that you can then take by saying, we can help increase your revenues by X percent if you follow this process. You can then take that to other partners who are serving much larger patient pool. So that would be the NGOs as a step up. And then you can go to an NGO and say, this is how data can be utilized. And this is how data can drive the impact metrics that you care about. And this is how you can be more efficient with how you spend each donor dollar. And once that is very clear, you can then make the sale to the NGO and then do a very, very similar process of building up a case study of how you can drive these specific metrics so that by the time you end up engaging with the public sector, you have a laundry list of all of the evidence that you need uh, and all of the successes and all of the wins and milestones that you've helped other organizations within the healthcare space achieve. And what you've essentially done is de-risked it for them. You've taken your innovation and stopped it from being a high-risk, high-change management, scary almost solution to something which is very reasonable, it has good metrics behind it, it has good organizations that they recognize that you've worked with and really does that de-risking process for them. So I think for myself and for the team at Capsule, once we made that shift that yes, we want to have the biggest impact and affect the most number of people and that will eventually lead us to working with public sector institutions. But until we get to the scale and size and have all the proof points that can really de-risk it for, for them. Let's focus on building our credibility in the private sector and the NPO space first. Well said, David. As you shared your response, it's like I've been watching my son with his building blocks, right? One by one, that stage approach, building a masterpiece. So well said, David. Okay, Tapiwa, I'm going to get back to talking about two specific topics that help not only drive innovation in public health supply chains, but also in particular support adoption because we know with change or technology or whatever else, if users don't adopt it, we don't get anywhere. So when it comes to capacity building and training, how does that support where we're trying to go to Piwa? You know, Scott, many times people know what they know. Sometimes they don't know what they don't know. Sometimes they know what they don't know, but don't do anything about it. So when you see capacity building and training, they close a gap around what people don't know. It plays a very strong part in providing individuals with the knowledge and skills that are necessary to utilize the innovation, including the many technical aspects of it. On top of creating that knowledge and skills awareness, it also facilitates buy-in. It is at that point of training people, making them more aware about the pros and cons of an innovation that they make that decision about, you know what, this is something that's going to be useful in our environment. And they actually buy in, they commit their minds to it, they commit their energy to it, which is a whole new thing. So it helps us, can I say, solve an, an insoluble problem. One of the most insoluble challenges in Africa has been the resistance to change. It's been a barrier to the adoption of many new innovations, some gold, high standard innovations, if just 
they would flat out because people are resistant to change. So through capacity building and training, you're able to dissolve old ways of doing things and help people and individuals navigate through that transition process. And lastly, when you are capacitating people, when you are training people, you've got to be able to listen as well because it is at that point that you are able to customize your innovation to local context. They give you feedback on their work environment. They give you feedback on what they see may be a challenge in the adoption of that. And you've got to listen. You've got to get back to the table. Tool is already there. It's just in customization. All right. So Mary-Kate, clearly Tapiwa has been there and done it. I don't know. You can't see from my end, but I've got about 21 pages of notes already <laughs> from y'all. Uh, Mary-Kate, what's one of the things from you know closing the gap around what you don't know, that resistance to change? Get this. I love this. Dissolving the old ways of doing things. That paints a picture. Mary-Kate, your favorite thing from what Tapiwa just said. So I think it's this theme, right, that the solution needs to be designed for the people. And if it's not, and if they're not somewhat excited about it, if they're not ready to receive the solution, it's not going to work. I think David said it really nicely when he said they're designing for the way the world is, not how they want the world to be. And that's a great, realistic, and the right approach. Yes, that's a great call out too. All right, so David, really quick, when it comes to capacity building and training, how do those things help us get us where we want to go? It helps us get to where we want to go by increasing people's familiarity with technology, with innovation, with the changes that are necessary to drive the outcomes that we want. But I I also have a contrarian point of view on this, where to Mary-Kate's point earlier about where she referenced my point on we want to respond to how the world is, not how we want it to be. One challenge that we set to the team when we scrap a lot of our products and effectively start from scratch, how can we give our clients all of the benefits and zero work at the same time? And that has been a thought exercise that we're constantly doing amongst our team. That's why our CTO, Femi, is pushing to our developers constantly. And he came up with an analogy that we use all the time where he says, we're plumbers. And... Plumbing works because you go to your tap, you turn it on, and the water just comes. You never really think about it. And you only ever think about plumbing when there's an issue. If there's a leak, if there's water damage, if there's no water when you turn on the tap. So we need to think of ourselves in a similar way where we just work in the background. People can answer the questions that they care about in whatever format that they want as quickly and as effectively as it can be done. And then we disappear when they're not interested in answering a specific question. And I think that is our approach where we actually want to minimize the amount of training and capacity building that is required by our clients to make it as easy as possible to engage with us. So while I believe that capacity building and training is important because it upskills everyone and raises the level of the game, especially when it comes to healthcare delivery, we still acknowledge the fact that people are people and one of the major qualities of human beings is that we're lazy. And that's one of the reasons why innovation exists is because it helps us do the same thing with less time and less effort. Yes. So we just see it as, okay, let's try and create our solutions, implement our solutions in a way which doesn't require anything from our clients or as minimal effort as possible. That plumber analogy was the knockout blow. That's what I'm looking for, David. You know, and it's funny, whenever I hear plumbers, I used to play cards back in the days before three kids kind of ended my poker playing days. <laughs> they called me the plumber because I was always working on a flush. 
So any <laughs> card players out there, always got to kick out of that. Okay. For the sake of today's conversation, we're going to kind of have to come down the home stretch here. And just a couple of final questions. And Tapiwa, I want to, before we make sure folks can know how to connect with you and David, Tapiwa, I've got one question for you because it goes to the heart, I think, of what a lot of folks out there don't really think about, kind of like the plumber example. And that is all the you know, the 54 different countries, different governments, different norms, societies, cultures, challenges, you name it, opportunities across the African continent. Tapiwa, what is one or two key considerations when it comes to truly scaling up and sustaining these innovative solutions across all these different African countries? What's a couple of quick thoughts there, Tapiwa? Scaling and sustaining is something that's very close to our hearts at Village Reach. We, a few years ago, we were reaching 15 million people. We moved to reaching 50 million people. In the last year, we reached 70 million people. We are now scaling up. We are targeting to reach 70 million people, 100 million people by 2026, and 350 million people by 330. So when, when you are scaling, you're really asking something that's very close to us. We know that if we're going to reach 350 million people at Village, we're not going to be doing it alone. We need to be able to collaborate with many stakeholders, including government agencies, non-governmental organizations, private sector partners, local communities. This is what we would do in Village Ditch, and this is what an innovator would do if they wanted to scale, collaborate and establish partnerships. Secondly, we've got to think about getting political will and buy-in. We always strive to get that political buy-in at a local level, at a national level, at a regional level, at a continental level with Africa CDC, with African Union. And if we have innovators that want to scale, they've got to focus on creating that political buy-in at the local national and regional level, depending on the maturity of the innovation and where it is going. And lastly, I want to talk about always think about financial sustainability. There's got to be a clear financial model to support the scaling up, to support the maintenance of innovative solutions. You don't want to scale up in the moment you live with your support. There are no internal resources. There are no creative funding models that are able to sustain and continue delivering the service. Okay, man, I got to go back to your first point. Mary-Kate, I'll get you to quickly respond as we start to wrap up here. 50 million to 70 million to 100 million is the goal in 2026. And what was that last goal to Piwa? 350 million by 2030. Oh, man. Okay, so Mary-Kate, just quickly respond to that. If I've ever heard of a BHAG, old, hairy, audacious goal, I think stealing from one of Jim Collins' books. Mary-Kate, respond to that incredible vision. I mean, like I started off the podcast, impossible not to be inspired by that, right? And I think laying it out in the way you did with numbers is amazing. And you're going to continue to reach those goals through your partnerships, right? I think that is pretty amazing to hear. And I'm excited to continue to check in with you all. Definitely. That truly is changing the world there. Incredible, critical, vital, noble mission. I hate to leave it here. I wish we had a couple more hours to spend, but I want to make sure our listeners know how to connect with both of our guests here today. So Tapiwa, let's stay with you for a second. Tapiwa, how can folks connect and learn a lot more about Village Reach? Sure. VillageReach.org, that's where you find us on, on our website. We are again as Village Reach on our Twitter pages and our Facebook pages. We're also on LinkedIn. There's numerous on social network through which you can reach us as Village Reach. Outstanding. And for reaching me, this is Tapio Mkwashi. You can reach me on my LinkedIn. I've got a growing range of people I'm connecting to. I'd like to learn more from everybody. Tapio on LinkedIn, Tapio Mkwashi, again on X. 
Outstanding. So, people, I think you got to open a, an academy. Again, I think you've got so much to share and teach and help people from your 15 plus years of doing it out in the industry. Really enjoyed your perspective here today. So again, folks, connect with Tapiwa McWashi, Director, Global Technical Team at Village Reach amongst any of those channels, especially if you want to be inspired and have eureka moments like Mary-Kate and I have had here today. David Chen, man, making it happen out there, bringing innovative entrepreneurial offerings to a very noble mission. And I can only see, I can see how Capsule is helping Hit that 350 million folks to have access to healthcare by 2030. That's just a short seven years from now. So David Chen, co-CEO, co-founder of Capsule, how can folks connect with you? Yeah, I like to make myself extremely accessible. So David Chen on LinkedIn or David Chen Capsule, K-A-P-S-U-L-E. And similarly, you can email me at david at capsuletech.com. And you can learn more about Capsule on our website, capsuletech.com. But yeah, you feel free to reach out. And if you want to learn more about what we're doing, or if you see any opportunities to partner, or you're curious about how you can utilize healthcare data, I'm very open to conversation. I love it, David. I appreciate how you have also inspired us and have powered some critical learning moments here. And Capsule, where they're driving the three A's. I'm stealing this shamelessly from your side here. Accessible, affordable, and authentic healthcare with data. Good stuff there. David Chen, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, Mary-Kate, before we wrap here today, two quick things. I'm going to get your favorite takeaway, but first, I've got to correct an error I made. I kind of inflated my resume a bit. I I did not get a yellow belt in Zen Shotokai Karate. (laughs) I got an orange belt to be what's got me beat by Olive Moore. But hey, more importantly, Mary-Kate, fascinating conversation here today. We knew it would be. David and Tapiwa has given us some stuff to really think about and hopefully take action with. So what was one of your favorite takeaways from today's conversation, Mary-Kate? I love this conversation. And I think my biggest takeaway has been kind of twofold, but kind of the same point. In order to get to the best, most innovative and effective solutions, number one, you have to define the problem first. Not only is that motivating, but it makes sure you're working on the best solution. And number two, you really have to make sure you have your partnerships in place. And in this instance, we're speaking to public and private partnerships, but we've seen the power of those partnerships, the information you're able to gather, the way you're able to roll out your solutions. I think that the well-defined problem and the partnerships get you to the most innovative and effective solutions. Very well said, Mary-Kate. Finishing with some supply chain poetry here as we wrap up here. All right. Big thanks to you, Mary-Kate Love, co-host here today, founder of National Supply Chain Day here in the States. Always a pleasure, Mary-Kate. Great to be here. Super excited about this conversation. I am too. Cross Africa series, very popular series here at Supply Chain Now. And I tell you, this has been a home run episode. So again, to PY with Village Reach, thank you so much. You being here. Y'all know how we wrap these things up. David and Tapiwa and Mary-Kate, man, they brought a truckload of knowledge and inspiration here today. But now the onus is on you listeners to take one thing, at least just one thing, make it simple and put it into action. Your team will appreciate it. And man, there's so many opportunities out there. Deeds, not words, right? We got too much lip service leadership out there. Folks, whatever you do on behalf of our entire team here at Supply Chain, now Scott Luton and Mary-Kate challenging you to do good. And to be the change, be like Tapiwa and David. The world be a much better place. And we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 
See you next time on Supply Chain Now.